0: Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Welcome to Round Hill Radio. I'm
1: Leslie. I'm Ed. And I'm Dan.
0: Hey, Dan. Welcome to the party today. Thank Thank you. you. So uh, Dan was so willing to join us as we are talking about the book, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. So a couple things before we get started. Um, One, this is a book I wish I had read 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It, Clarified so many things for me that I kind of had on the outskirts of experience or understanding or hearing, and really just shown so much light in so many corners of my understanding. So, firstly, I'm just so glad we're doing this. If you, dear listeners and watchers, have not had a chance to read this book, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, even the audio book is really, really well read. So, if you're an audio File, then I encourage you to do it that way if that's your jam. Um, It's worth saying that any conversation that we're having here, if you haven't read the book yet, it's going to kind of be watered down. Um, We obviously all bring our own uh, context, our own personal histories to this. So I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to the book, listened or read the book yet to go do that first and then join us in conversation, because I really think it's important to approach the book from your own, through your own lens, and then be part of this conversation. Um, I think it's, you know, we're all in our own bubbles in our own spheres. And so I think it's helpful to, find where you are and then find where we are. And then hopefully this is only the beginning of a much bigger conversation um, that we're going to continue here on Roundtail Radio. So we're so grateful for you taking the time, spending this time with us. So we're going to launch in. Um, So Ed has generously offered to give us some background on this and uh, go go forth.
2: (laughs) Well, I'll I'll put out a a few sort of large brush strokes about Howard Thurman's life. And uh, I will say that I'd never heard of Howard Thurman um, until I went to seminary. So when I attended seminary, Union Theological Seminary, uh, there was a very strong black studies program. And Howard, I, I learned very quickly that Howard Thurman was um, a, a very, very important uh, figure in the African-American church movement throughout the early part of the 20th century. He was born in 1899 and he died in 1981, and uh, so he had a very close relationship with, I believe it's his maternal grandmother, and he mentions her in the book. She comes in in a very important way, actually. She gave him some counsel that turned out to be very important in his life, Um, so she was actually a slave, lived as a slave, and took all of that memory of that horrifying time with her obviously throughout her entire life and and shared a lot of that with Howard Thurman. So you can imagine how that affected him. He grew up in Florida and I think he attended one of what, at that time there were only three high schools in the entire state of Florida that served African-American students. And he attended one of them. And uh, he then went on to Morehouse College. He was a classmate. Of Martin Luther King Jr.'s father, uh, who became eventually became known as Daddy King, and uh, he then went on to seminary. It seems like wherever our Thurman went to school, he was a valedictorian. He just <laughs> finished number one wherever he was. So we he was love
0: overachievers a, here, don't a little we? Overachiever,
2: yeah, but a great overachiever, right? And he just awesome. was uh, a very great student, a great learner. And I think he carried that with him through his whole life. It, throughout his adult life, he was always associated in some way with an institution of higher education. Mm-hmm. And he often w- served as either uh, you know, a dean of the chapel or a professor of philosophy or religion. So there were so many students who benefited from their contact with him. But principally it was Martin Luther King Jr. who saw him as one of his great mentors. And Dr. King always carried a copy of Jesus and the disinherited with him wherever he went. So this book was written in 1949. And it's interesting to think that that book was written in 49 and the Montgomery bus boycott was in 1955. So I just think of Martin Luther King Jr. reading that book And then just, you know, a few, probably as soon as it came out, because he was a close family friend. And then just six years later, Dr. King finds himself not in a position that he actually sought, but, you know, as the kind of the spiritual head of the Montgomery bus boycott. So those were some very broad brushstrokes. And uh, he was... um, He's a person who continues to exert a lot of influence, and I I think I'll just say that the reason we came across him is that uh, I've been doing some work through my denomination, the United Church of Christ, on racial justice, and uh, we've been working with two men who are part of an organization called Racial Resilience, and they use this book in all of their work, and they do a lot of work with institutions of higher education and otherwise, and so that's uh, that's how we got started. So then... We brought it into our little circle here.
0: Yeah, and I'm so glad we did. It's interesting being. I'm so I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. Howard Thurman was a name I've known in this often in the same sentence as Martin Luther King Jr. Obviously, there's such a a complex history in that city, um, and unsurprisingly, I was raised in a fairly um, gentrified very, very gentrified part of the city. Um, and as I got a little bit older and was able to explore more and, and was exposed to more of the more diverse and wonderful parts of the city that way, it, it's just, um, I feel like I I only saw the tip of, of a, of an iceberg of a culture that I never really fully understand. Um, and so it's really interesting to hear, hear his voice And it kind of, it like, it like connects to a, to some, part of my childhood memory and childhood experience is sort of hearing these names of these amazing figures um, and what my childhood and my child-like understanding was. And then as now my adult understanding has evolved. It's so, so, so interesting um, and, and nice to sort of connect the dots a little bit better and a little bit clearer and start to color in where the once there was just line art, you know, it's, it's been really fascinating. I'm so glad we're doing this. Um, enough, enough self-congratulation. Um, so <laughs> let's dive in. I was so connected with the idea. I found this story that um, he was saying about his grandmother, about how she wouldn't read any of the scripture of Paul. Right. Um, which is in the first chapter, um, which is titled, I I believe Jesus and interpretation. Um, we're going to kind of take this chapter by chapter as a convenient way to organize our thoughts. Um, and I thought that was so, so interesting because I, you know, that, 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 that the, the the scripture of Paul was used in such a negative way during slave times, um, Mm -hmm. That that was such a strong, she had such a strong visceral reaction against it. But she was so willing to read other, you know, to engage with the Bible still, I think was mm-hmm. such a testament to her faith.
2: Yeah, it's it's really, you know, you think about her, she, she was forced to listen to sermons from white preachers when she served as a slave. And uh, that text was almost always slaves be obedient to your master's. A text that's attributed to St. Paul. And it's interesting to see Howard Thurman wrestling with that text because he tries to put it in a larger context. And in, in a sense, he's not letting Paul off, but mm-hmm. he is saying, so you have to understand some things about Paul in order to understand why he makes that comment. He's a citizen. He, he sees himself as a citizen of the Roman Empire. And, you know, he's connected with the all of the governmental, governmental infrastructure that goes along with this. So he's... Um, He's trying hard to to understand why Paul would say something like that, but nevertheless, her grand his grandmother basically boycotted that entire section of the New Testament, and that that didn't change
0: except for First Corinthians (laughs) thirteen.
2: That's right. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. That was the the great hymn of love. I thought
0: that, which I thought was so perfect. I was like, she has she's sound like a force uh, to be sure.
1: So I'd love to. Uh, I was thinking about this conversation, and is just so helpful for me. And uh, I was going back to my early memories of faith formation, and, and I gotta be honest, I'll just throw this out there too. Uh, I was not familiar with Howard Thurman or any of African American theologians, and even even in seminary, and and there, the irony is not lost there on me. And in fact, I went to seminary with with a very large African American population but yet they were not reading the theologians or the the works of the pastors of of um, of african americans um and so it took me a long time to be uh, and travels. And in fact, it was really my time at the American church in Paris that I became more aware and exposed to like liberation theology and and uh, even Martin Luther King Jr., who, who preached at the American church in Paris. Of course, I knew of him, but probably had not read many of his works until I found myself preaching from that same pulpit he preached and, say, and believing that there's so much I can learn. And uh, so it's been a really interesting journey for me. And I'm I have a lot I have a lot to learn uh, from Thurman and from his grandmother and how people approach the, the text and even Paul. And I was just thinking about this uh, just actually yesterday because it's Palm Sunday uh, and we're entering to Holy Week. And so, you know, the expectations of, of the, the, the people when Jesus comes in is they're expecting this person of power, of great influence, of military might. And they're rallying around him because they think that he is going to reinstate Israel and overthrow Rome and, and take the seat, get, get power. Well, that wasn't why he came. Uh, and we, of course, know the story. And he, in fact, rode in on a donkey, very symbolic of, of uh, this, this self-emptying love. And yet, I find it so interesting that throughout, you know, at least almost a 2000 year history of the Christian church, but certainly from, you know, 300 to 400 AD, that the church, when they've gained power, when they've wanted power, they've rallied around Jesus. Um, but yet the Jesus of scripture and how and Thurman points us out in the first chapter uh, was not in the position of power. And Jesus was an, an, a, a poor Jew um, and Living, you know, as a sort of a living as a minority in this power structure of Rome, and so you can understand how Thurman and anyone who feels um, disenfranchised, disinherited, maybe as opposed to Paul, who actually had rights and was a citizen and actually was very different than Jesus positionally, how how Christ and the person of Jesus really resonates with with the. You know, the, the outcasts and the marginalized and those who feel powerless. But yet uh, the, you know, aspects of the Christian church or, or Christendom has rallied around Christ as this power figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just find that very um, there's a great irony mm-hmm. and, and sort of sadness in that. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that I'm still wrestling with as well uh, because of the position that I was born into. And so this book, and even just this first chapter, helping to really understand and interpret the, the the world of Jesus, how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus responded to those in power, those without power. He did not have power. He did not have you know re- influence or rights. Very similar, to, you know, as opposed to Paul, uh, is, is very helpful to help uh, just frame that context. And so uh, hey, I'm glad that we're reading this book and and delving into this. And I know. And Leslie, you said this is just at the tip of the iceberg, we're scratching the surface. But I think these conversations are really, really uh, relevant, clearly, and really important for us uh, as people of faith.
0: Absolutely. The thing that I, that he, the way he framed Paul was so interesting to me because, so Paul was a person who had government protection. Um, he could go to the government if there was an issue that was something Jesus did not have. But then there's also this other side of Paul framed in this book, at least is that Paul felt like an outsider, that he was not a direct disciple of Jesus. He was an apostle, but he wasn't a direct disciple and that the other disciples would go to him and be like, "Well, you weren't there. You don't know. And this kind of, this sort of perceived or actual feeling of slight on Paul's side, Mm. I think is something that we can, without great effort, draw some, draw some connections to in modern day of this idea of just like, you know, there's two sides to every story, of course, but that it's, you know, that finding identity of Jesus and and this idea of, of Jesus of being peace and love and the meek and the humble is such a, to me, such a core tenet of the faith. And then to, like you said, to take it and in my opinion, twist it, uh, mm-hmm. is, is you, if, I think if you take three seconds and start looking at it, you're like, what is What is actually happening here? <laughs> like, how has it happened for millennia that that's something that's been done over and over and over again? Right. Uh, it, start, it kind of boggles the mind a little yeah. bit, or a lot of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think these are great questions to ask. I think one of the things I like most about this little book Uh, is that he raises such basic questions. He asks at the very beginning, so how is it that a religion built around, essentially, a Mediterranean Jewish peasant becomes the religion of the dominant, right? And and the religion becomes used, as he points out, by slaveholders to reinforce a a form of domination, which actually Jesus came to overthrow. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of the most bizarre kinds of manipulations that you can imagine. And so by starting off with that basic question, though, he does, and I think this is what you're both suggesting, it does kind of push the needle back in our direction. So what what has become of our relationship with this Mediterranean Jewish peasant, right? And uh, who doesn't have access to the corridors of power in fact doesn't even want it in one sense because he's he's building a different kind of movement he's building a whole different uh, infrastructure that's based on giving away power and this is the thing that really fascinates Thurman he said here's here is a person who is completely for the disenfranchised mm-hmm. this is the essence of his mission and when we lose that we lose everything about Jesus
0: Absolutely. And I think that because he was disenfranchised himself, there's a quote here, if you'll allow me. It says he was not protected by the normal guarantees of citizenship, that quiet sense of security, which comes from knowing that you belong and the general climate of confidence, which it inspires. And I think that, you know, I think you you called it a little book and it is it is short and mighty yes. in its, its density. You know, I think I, my, I, I ran out of highlighter ink in my highlighter <laughs> because every sentence packs such a punch um, of just value and truth sometimes and hard truth some other times. Um, yeah, I, and then I think uh, the next page, To me, I wrote I wrote I put a bracket and I wrote thesis (laughs) where it says he says the striking similarity between the social position of Jesus and Palestine and the vast majority of African-Americans is obvious to anyone who tarries long over the facts. And I would say it tarries briefly over the facts. You know, I think it's um, even more so today as we are seeing really important conversations about race happening in our nation um, It is bringing information to the forefront and conversations to the forefront that in my opinion have been lasting, have been, you know, conversations that have been needing to happen and things that are, have been happening for decades and generations. Um, and I think that it's, this is so helpful in, in understanding some of the sticking points. I feel like, especially, you know, in my own world, it's how can I talk to people? how can I communicate how I'm feeling about these things and and find compassion? Um, Ed and I actually yesterday had a conversation about understanding versus compassion and that understanding maybe isn't necessary for compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually later in the book, I put a big star next to a sentence where Howard, uh, Howard Thurman wrote about unsympathetic understanding and uh, mm-hmm. understanding and compassion are not the same thing so we'll get to that later i'm excited yeah. i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> myself
2: it's a teaser it's on the horizon
0: get excited it'll probably be in the next episode <laughs> yeah so then we lead into the sort of that sort of like to me that's sort of like the introduction of the book that first chapter um and then we lead into an entire chapter about fear nice. um Which when I first dove into this book, I would not have guessed that that was that that was how this book was organized.
2: Right. How it's constructed. So I have a question for both of you. So I think you've answered it in part, Leslie, which is, was it surprising when you open up this book? First chapter, it's Jesus and interpretation. We say, okay, that that seems to make sense. And then the title of the next chapter is fear. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of that? Why, Why does he structure the book that way?
1: yeah i mean I, I i don't know why he did but i have a guess and at least it's helpful for me you know because that chapter yeah i wasn't expecting that either but then i thought about that and, and for me to be just begin just begin to empathize or understand the, the plight of the disinherited is to try to get into the mindset and their culture and and you know, everything about uh, a, a disinherited people group and, and fear. I mean, this is a thing that's front and center. It's just clearly fear uh, that drives away relationships that causes people to act out, that causes rifts, that causes all of these things It's coming from a place of fear because of the way people have been treated. And like for me growing up, you know, I might be afraid of certain, you know, falling down and hurting myself, but I've never had I've never experienced this overwhelming sense of fear, um, especially in relationship with other people. It's not been my story. That is the story that is the plight for so many people throughout history. And, you know, it was really hard to honestly for me and challenging to read that chapter because uh, I'm, I was starting to understand a bit more of the 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 plight and what goes on in people's minds and hearts and how that can impact everything Mm -hmm. everything is clouded by this this weight of 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 fear because of oppression because of you know inequity because of all you know everything that they've experienced um systemically and systematically and so i almost feel like you really it's hard to begin or, or to look past the resolution or to get to the resolution with understanding fear first. And uh, it's a hard way to jump into it, but a really important way.
0: Yeah, and I feel like our tendency is to want to jump to the last chapter, which is love. You're like, let's go there. That one's nicer. That yeah. one's easier. Um, but first, you have to get through the three chapters of fear, deception, and hate, which he calls the three hounds of hell, oh, which I think right. is such a, a great, uh, a wonderful description. I think, too, that you could almost, these three chapters, you could almost have the rest of the title of them be and power, or versus power, mm-hmm. you know, fear and power, deception and power, hate and power. This idea that these are are byproducts, these are coping mechanisms, these are direct results of inequity. Um, I think is is so interesting and, and and absolutely absolutely challenging. Of you know, even that um, and fear, and then he also dives into the reaction of fear mm-hmm. so that there is there is fear on the part of the disinherited and disenfranchised then there's also this like reactive fear in this, this in the groups of those in power of fear of the other um and this this like fear of uprising um right. he uses David and Goliath as an example mm-hmm. um which I thought was so interesting it just is sort of like ping pong thing once fear is in the conversation it becomes all-encompassing right. and i think that's the word sort of what we see in all three of those in fear in deception and in hate that once there's that that drop of it it just amplifies and amplifies and amplifies in a group yeah. or between groups <laughs>
1: And if he only had those three chapters, I think it paints a a stark picture of of reality. And it's really depressing because you start to understand both sides. I think he does a brilliant job doing that. You understand about the fear. And Leslie made a great point. And then there's the fear of those who are in power. They fear losing their power. They fear an uprising. They fear violence. They fear. And so they're they're not going to give an inch they're not going to do anything to help the disenfranchised and disinherited because they fear what will happen. And you start to understand, and I'm not saying you condone, but you understand both sides and why we're at this like standstill and why we've been at this standstill for, for centuries. And you think, oh there's no hope i mean it's, we see it for what it is and we see how it's become what it is so again i'm glad that it's not just the the hounds of hell those three chapters because there there is hope uh, and you guess to that but again i think to understand that it's not just this easy cliche like oh I'll just love everybody and we'll, no it it would take serious work and effort on both sides mm-hmm. To, to come to a place of reconciliation. And the only way to really appreciate the seriousness of the work that's needed is to go through these three chapters, to go through you know the fear and the deception and the hatred and to understand that. So it's almost like going through, again, I'm thinking of Holy Week right now, because that's front and center. It's like going through the cross in order to get to Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, Easter doesn't mean as much. And if, if anything, if you don't go through the cross, but to get through that, to go through the agony and the pain and the despair and the death of that Friday and that Saturday is really hard, painful, but you have to go through that. And I feel like he's bringing us through that just in this book. And again, a short book, but a mighty book. And he's bringing us through in just three chapters, uh, the, the the plight and the struggle of on both sides. So, it's, it's a challenge, but it's one that um, it's really important for us to understand and to enter into.
2: Yeah, I was uh, struck back in the first chapter. Uh, So one question I always ask when I'm reading a book like this is who's it for? Who's the audience? Mm. And, um, you know, part of me, uh, as I was reading through the first chapter thought, well, in a sense, this is for everyone. And he says something about Jesus that um, I think sort of, makes for that foundation that the audience is very large. He says, um, again and again, Jesus came back to the inner life of the individual. With increasing insight and startling accuracy, he placed his finger on the inward center as the crucial arena where the issues would determine the destiny of his people. Which is interesting because obviously Jesus is living with and working with people who are materially impoverished you can just imagine, you know, the high uh, rate of, um, you know, infant death, I mean, people dying of of starvation, overtaxed, overworked. Um, So however, as he points out, it's really, liberation has to start with this interior life. So after he has that first chapter, he automatically brings us inside the mind of the disinherited person. So you get three chapters, right, and these are the three dominant themes that he sees, and it occurred to me as I was reading through this, now I've read this, I'd read this book years ago, but as I reread it for our conversation, I feel like I'm, in, I'm overhearing a conversation that he's having with someone else, that it's not really addressed to me directly, it's not addressed to me as a white male directly, but it's important for me to overhear this conversation, and to understand where where he's really addressing these comments, he's really speaking to people who have their backs against the wall, and he can t- constantly repeats that. We get to be part of the conversation, but it's almost as if now we are asked to stand off to the side, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, not be the center part of the conversation. And I think uh, Leslie, you mentioned something earlier. You know, we want to get to that last chapter. When, when's love going to come into this? Um, What I've been learning from people who are organizing workshops on racial justice these days is that people, especially white people, want to say, "Okay, what are we going to do? What's the action we're going to take? And over and over again, I'm hearing you're not ready to take action. You haven't understood the inner life of the person yet who's been so afflicted and impacted by racism. So first of all, just step back and listen. And learn. And I think that's why more and more people are starting to
0: read Howard Thurman's little book here. That makes me think of a quote I heard yesterday that has completely blown my mind and transformed my day, which is that uh, I will learn nothing today from the words that I speak. I will mm. only learn from listening. Because oh. anything we say oh. is something we already know.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the
0: only thing we're going to learn, we can learn the only way we can learn is through listening. Um, and so that's just blown my mind as a person who is often, you know, my report credit as a kid was like, she talks too much. <laughs> no,
1: I would who never would have guessed, guessed that.
0: Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> which is why you make a great podcast host and facilitator. <laughs>
0: See, I you know, it was meant to be. Uh, but it's it, but the idea of listening really is an intentional listening, right? right? Not listening is not not talking. Listening is being part of a conversation without Right. constantly talking. Um, and I think that's such an interesting thing. Can we, I feel like we, we should take an opportunity to clarify some language real quick. Um, in the preface of the edition I had, there was a foreword, and I've heard you guys have both said this term liberation theology, um, for me and for our listeners. Can, can we define that a little bit? Cause I'm not, I'm not really clear on what that actually is.
2: Yeah, good question, Dan. How did you? You talked about discovering this in some ways after you attended seminary and mm-hmm. part of your work at the American Church in Paris. What what did liberation theology come to mean for you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in some ways, I, I would actually look at Howard Thurman as well. I mean, there's you know Oscar Romero and and some uh, you know other theologians that, uh, to my understanding, have all been part of an ethnic minority group. And so the way that they have approached the scriptures and the way that they have approached um, theology, their understanding of God and God's interaction in the world has come from that place, which is traditionally historically radically different than those who have written and approached theology from a place of power. Uh, And so very often they look at the story of the Exodus and kind of that's the central theme of, of a lot of, you know, their theological lens, um, and you know, freedom of of slavery and captivity and oppression and and the inbreaking of of justice that continues in in the reign of, of Jesus, and so it's it's a lens, it's one interpretation, but that I think historically too, I know, in like in Latin America, the liberation theologians really came to prominence and and had great impact upon the churches and movements in places like Latin America and other places as well. But then again, for maybe those, for some of those reasons, I mean, a kid growing up in New Hampshire, you know, I I really had never heard of that. And and also, therefore, never, you know, as we all do, we're products of, of our culture and our own cultural lens. So I had approached the Bible only from one lens, only from one theological perspective, And so as I began to read some liberation theologians and their works, it it, for me, it opened my eyes in in a wonderful way to the boldness and the beauty of of the the texts that can speak with and for all people. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that most seminaries will will try to do is provide different types of theological ways of looking at the text. So then you get a, a richer, more brilliant mosaic, if you will of that. And this is one really important, critical piece.
2: Uh, Maybe just one follow-up comment on that, that, you know, he, he mentions in his opening chapter, it has long been a matter of serious moment that for decades, we have studied the various peoples of the world and those who live as our neighbors as objects of missionary endeavor and enterprise without being at all willing to treat them either as brothers or as sisters or as human beings. And I think liberation theology, as Dan's pointing out, part of it is it does ask the question, what are the people hearing, right? It's not what are we bringing to a particular group, but what is their relationship with God and what what are they thinking about that? Um, How do they read the gospel? What hope do they see in it? So as opposed to the traditional missionary impulse, which goes from a position of power to a position of weakness and says, we're here to convert you and save your soul, This is more about God wants to liberate you from economic injustice, racial injustice, gender injustice. And that's the great thrust of liberation theology, and to really open up that voice which so often goes unheard as Thurman points out yeah
1: yeah and it's about the here and now you know and I think with with the, the missionaries and I'm glad Ed you mentioned that this kind of colonial spirit of yes we we are here to save you to protect you um to help you and if they would ever use the word liberate it would only be for like to liberate you for eternal salvation you know um so very with very little historically, very little concern for the here and now and the plight, the, the economic you know, plight, poverty, you know, illness. They said, well, if we just save your souls then it doesn't matter what happens to you in this world, it doesn't really matter. It's almost irrelevant because you're good for, you know, for after you die. And in fact, the sooner you die, probably the better because you're going to a better place. I mean, this is really the mentality, and this is what people have heard. So liberation theology says, no, Jesus' dream, it was to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And if that's going to be, if heaven's going to be a place of no more uh, warfare, no more bloodshed, no more tears, uh, no more poverty, no more pain, illness, we should be working towards that now for all people. And any time you have people who are struggling in any way – that they need to be liberated from that. Jesus fed people real food. He healed people of real diseases and illnesses uh, first, and sometimes he never preached afterwards. He just healed them because that was his mission to restore dignity and health and wholeness to people while they were alive on earth. And uh, that's yet yeah, in sort of the thrust of liberation theology. Um, and and it's uh, it, it can be challenging for for people in, in power who have a different. Uh, other, otherworldly mindset, I'll say.
0: That's so helpful. Thank you both for that. That's, I think that helps. That also just ties into what we were just talking about. Cause it feels like in the traditional mode, I suppose that that's very much speaking without listening. Right. It ties into that, to what we were just saying precisely. So then chapter three, deception, um, which if I ha- if you had me guess what the three chapters were, I would never have guessed deception. Um, I thought it was interesting. He starts with a very, to me, funny example of a student trying to distract their teacher from a thing they don't want to do, which is something I see almost every day in piano lessons. <laughs> I have one very sweet student who tries to get me to talk about my dog because she knows I'll go on and on for about 10 minutes straight. I've caught on finally. <laughs> But, you know, we start from sort of something as innocuous and humorous as that to obviously so much more dramatic and life saving sometimes deceptions over the period. Um, and then this idea that he had this concept of, of deception changing who you are, mm. that this fundamental, that, that that repetitive, habitual deception fundamentally changes you as a person yes um yeah. like he said some i've lost the quote um but it's basically that you you don't know where the lies start and the lies end when it's something that has been so um so much a part of your of your life um yeah. and then yeah. he, he, go ahead sorry well, just a,
2: a quick thought leslie just following what you're saying you know you you create as a disenfranchised person you create a persona because it's designed to help you survive. And he says this so bluntly, Um, you know, he says on the subsistence level, values are interpreted in terms of their bearing upon the one major concern of all activity, not being killed. I mean, to think about what it means, you know, to wake up in the morning and understand clearly that your objective that day is not to be killed. Not to be killed, he says, becomes the great end, and morality takes its meaning from that center. And I love the way that he, when he's talking about deception, he says a profound piece of surgery has to take place in the very psyche of the disinherited before the great claim of the religion of Jesus can be presented. So he's saying... You can't even introduce this Jesus and interpretation until you first have kind of opened up the space. The great stretches of barren places in the soul must be revitalized, brought to life before they can be challenged. I mean, he writes with such sensitivity, right? He's kind of like a surgeon of the soul. And he sees this way in which the psyche has become so twisted and shaped um, by virtue of the fear of being killed that uh, so? How do you help a person to discover their real self, their true self? I think he calls it in other writings the genuine self. Mm-hmm. Um, when when all of that those layers right have accumulated over time, so in the end we say, "I don't really know who I am anymore." Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a very traumatic thing to come to in one life. You know, Absolutely. In life.
0: Yeah, the deception as a coping mechanism. Mm. Um, there's so many easily thought of groups in in the world that we've experienced do that, whether it's by race or by gender or what have you. That it's that you 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 become inherently. I always picture sort of like you you have a space you're supposed to fill, and you contort to try to fill it, and you no right. longer look like you anymore.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, Great image. Great image. Um.
0: Right. I. I don't want to jump ahead a little bit in, in the chapter, but I just I'm struck by this uh, this letter he had from Mahatma Gandhi um, mm-hmm. later in the chapter. So he's, he's gone through deception. We can go back, of course, but he says, speak the truth without fear and without exception and see everyone whose work is related to your purpose. You are in God's work. So you need not fear, man's scorn. If they listen to your requests and grant them, you'll be satisfied. If they reject them, then you must make their rejection, your strength. Mm. And I find that such a statement of courage. And then he goes on to find, he goes on to basically say, if you're by yourself, that's almost impossible. But if you have, like-minded people with you all speaking the truth then you're going to be okay um mm. and it ties in so much with so many things we've talked about on this podcast we've talked about in conversations about climate change how does one person reverse this Well, stop being one person
2: right yeah um
0: right. which For is sure. an oversimplification of course um especially in this situation but i think that he that that quote from Gandhi just strikes me as such a such a bold empowering thing but also a challenge and I can't imagine someone hearing this who finds himself in that situation being like well that easier said than done Gandhi it's kind of what I pictured the reader of that letter to say
1: Mm -hmm. and those words you know I appreciate it is the sense of sincerity and authenticity, but, but challenge as well, because, you know, and Thurman's able to do that because he knows that plight. I mean, he's speaking uh, from, from within and not giving excuses for disinherited people to react or act a certain way to, to, as Leslie, you know, the analogy that you use to kind of become something different. He's saying, no, you were meant to become much more. And, and that's so important to, to, to reclaim who you are, and to, to bring like-minded people around you, because there are their strength in numbers, and collectively you help to remember your humanity, um, and then you see others in their full humanity as well. And I can imagine, you know, that, that this sentiment and this both sort of challenge and and encouragement. Was echoing in the voice of the civil rights leaders, you know Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis and others, because they found solidarity with one another and they spoke the truth and they 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 stood up or sat down for what they believed to be to be right and they did that together. They found power and strength from from within, from God and from you know from each other. But what I also found really uh, again inspiring was just reading some books and some documentaries on the civil rights movement. obviously, you know, I wasn't born then. So I had, I wasn't one that, that walked through that was the amount of, of love that was demonstrated by those who were, who were, uh, who were attacked, you know, that they, they, it was nonviolent and peaceful. Yes. But because they were channeling the, the love of Christ and viewing and I just, I can't imagine this personally, but viewing those people who were spewing hatred and lies and and abuse to them, they were viewing them as fellow humans created in the image of God, beloved, and therefore they would not react negatively or try to give harm to others. And And in this chapter, towards the end of the chapter, Thurman talks about this. And at first I thought, you know, he's only addressing one side of, of the equation, but I think in reality, he is addressing everyone. And he, he's running, um, let's see if I can pull this up. He said, he's talking about the importance of seeing people eye to eye as fellow humans and having a genuine, sincere, authentic relationship. Listening, right? Like listening with intent. Tell me your story. I don't see you as anybody else other than I see myself. He writes, sincerity in human relations is equal to and the same as sincerity to God. If we accept this explanation as clue to Jesus' meaning, we come upon the stark fact that the insistence of Jesus upon genuineness is absolute. Man's relationship to man— and man's relationship to God are one relation. Instead of relationship between the weak and the strong, there is merely a relationship between human beings. A man is a man, no more, no less. The awareness of this fact makes, marks the supreme moment of human dignity. Hmm. And that's powerful. And for me, Jesus came to restore that. He saw people and he said, love your enemies. And they go, how can we do that? if you're able to see them and not for the power that they have or in any other relationship other than sincere, genuine human as we are. And we, I believe, you know, and Thurman would believe this too. We need that spirit of Christ to empower us and embolden us to do that apart from, from Christ's example and ever present help. It's, it's, it's really, really difficult to do that But thanks be to God that we have that that help and we have Christ's example and presence uh, that has fueled these movements um, of of love and compassion, you know, over these last 2000 years.
2: Yeah, one of the things that um, really struck me as I read this book is how much moral authority he wants to put back in the hands of the disinherited because i think he believes believed that the conversation was going to move from the disinherited to the powerful it was unlikely to go the other way around and uh, if you think about what happened in in the, the united states from the time when he wrote, let's see he wrote this book in 1949 bring that up all the way through the 1960s think about the number of black Men and women who were lynched during that period of time, right? So even even to imagine having a conversation with a person, a white person in power, uh, you know. Again, I read the book and thought he's really communicating to these individuals that, in a sense, you're the hope of the world. You know, which goes all the way back to Jesus, essentially doing the same thing. You're the light. You know, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. He's saying this also to disenfranchised people. And um, I thought it was such an incredibly empowering thing. I also have to believe that people, you know, uh, who would have been reading this book back in 1952 or 53 must have said, what? You're expecting us to do what? Um, So anyway, I just I, I thought it was incredibly empowering to hear that trust that he had in those individuals to whom he's addressing you know this book and and just one quick follow-up comment you know in each one of these chapters I was thinking today if this was written as a self-help book there would be like eight steps at the end of each chapter like things you can do not to be deceptive anymore you know or things you can do to overcome your fear none of that's here he when he talks about fear when the antidote to fear is to remind yourself that you're a child of God. The antidote to deception is sincerity. And I think we want to say, well, break that down for me. You know, <laughs> give, me, give me the steps and the substeps, Right. And the support group to go along with it and the follow up book and journal. Right. So I get the whole thing. No, not with Howard Thurman. It's almost as if he says, look, you know what sincerity means. You know what that is. Be sincere. Don't be anything other than sincere, sincere, because I think, as you point out, Dan, you know, he's saying Sincerity will bring you close to God and it will bring you close to other people.
0: Thanks for listening to part one of our book club discussion of Jesus and the Disinherited. Want to be part of the conversation? Send us an email at podcast at roundhillcommunitychurch.org with any comments or questions. And be sure to join us next week for part two. Roundhill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Roundhill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org dot org.